Amen. Good morning, church. This morning we're reading from the book of Esther. We're starting at chapter 4, or reading all of chapter 4. Uh, the story so far, because we're kind of halfway through the story of Esther at this point, is that Haman has convinced King Xerxes to uh, write an edict to annihilate all the Jews. And Queen Esther, of course, is a Jew. And that's where we pick up the story. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they will be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away 
and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Thanks so much. Bring my water today just in case. It's pretty, it's pretty humid. Uh, thank you for that Bible reading. We are looking at Esther this morning, uh, and we are in our series of the five festal garments, uh, the last one. Uh, we're going to be thinking about deliverance. So I might pray for us as we read God's word that God would speak to us. Pray with me. Father, as we come before you this morning, uh, we hear your word read to us. We're going to look at this story of Esther. Father, this is an ancient book, but we pray for your spirit in us. Uh, and those who are at home, that you would speak to us, reveal yourself to us, and how you want us to live as a result. We pray in Jesus' mighty, awesome name. Amen. Amen. Our fifth garment we are looking at from Esther is deliverance. Deliverance is when you're in a situation and there is no help, there's no hope, you need salvation, you need help, you can't see a way out. You need deliverance. I was blessed this week, surprisingly, to hear from uh, some communication from Tonga, where the tsunami, where they've had the big volcano, and the accounts of what I heard were just amazing. Uh, Big uh, cloud, massive cloud, uh, multiple massive uh, loud bangs, so loud they've hurt people's ears. Uh, the, the atmosphere turning to gas and the waves rising up and actually rolling water and rocks and stones into homes uh, and now this volcanic ash everywhere. And you can imagine what, I can't even imagine, maybe you can, what was that like, how scary was that, how terrified. Can you imagine uh, the cries out, the prayers for deliverance? An unbelievable situation. And we actually got to put it in the newsletter and we just had prayed for rain. Apparently it has rained in the capital in the last couple of days. So I praise God for that. Again, praying for deliverance. That's what we're thinking about and that's what we're going to be looking at as we look through the story of Esther. Uh, And I thought most of us probably didn't happen to read Esther last night, even though you couldn't sleep and you were awake and you got Esther out. No. Great. Well, I thought we'd go through it a bit again today uh, and have a, just give us a reminder of this awesome book. Um, I will say that it is an Old Testament book. Uh, it is written to remind uh, the Jewish people uh, of being, uh, finding relief from their enemies and to teach why there is this festival called Purim, uh, which is celebrated even today, every year, as a remembrance of this. Uh, the story is set in around 486 to 465 BC, and we're going to meet a king, King Xerxes. This is a picture of his kingdom. He is the king of the Persian Empire uh, that stretches from Greece all the way to modern-day Pakistan. You could, it's probably about the size of Australia, geographically. 127 provinces uh, that he has to look out for. Uh, and at this time, this is about 110 years after the Jews had been exiled, after Israel, uh, after the Jewish people had been exiled. And by this time, uh, there are Jewish people scattered all around the kingdom. There is a few that have come back uh, to Israel, but most are scattered around the kingdom. And this sets the scene for the story of Esther. 
So I might just run through it for us. Uh, here is this king, and historians will tell us that he's lining up for war. So he invites all the nobles, all the officials uh, from across the kingdom to join him for six months of banqueting. That sounds pretty good to me. Six months of banqueting. He's schmoozing, and he is showing off his wealth, his opulence, all these things. And to show off to everyone, he's like, you know what? I'm so powerful and amazing. We in Maya, we have the best women the most beautiful women in all of the land. He says, I'm going to bring my queen, Queen Vashti, in. She's holding her own banquet at the moment because I want to show off to all the officials how awesome and beautiful my wife is. Queen Vashti, come. He sends a message. She says, no, I'm not coming to show off. He's embarrassed uh, amongst all these nobles and officials. It's not good diplomatically. He actually sends out an edict that from now on to all the lands that women should respect Uh, their husbands and he's so upset to make a statement he strips Queen Vashti of her of her queenship strips her of her role and he's without a queen so his advisors recommend what you should do is let a search be made across all the provinces for a new queen let the king appoint commissioners they will go out they will gather the most beautiful women from across the land they will come and live in the the harem Uh, And they'll be raised, and the one the king likes can become the queen. So we're in this place called Susa, uh, also known as Susha. It's in modern-day Iran. This is the capital where the king uh, lives. But it's also where there is a man named Mordecai. And he is looking after his cousin. She's lost her parents. Her name's Hadassah, or as we know her, Esther. And she gets pulled in to this beauty contest. She goes to live in the harem. And like all the women from across the land living in the harem, they go into 12 months of beauty treatment. I don't know what this would be like. It doesn't make sense to me. But six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfume and cosmetics. Maybe that sounds good to some people. I don't know. But she goes into 12 months of beauty treatment. I do understand they also bring men in as well as eunuchs. So better to be a woman and go in. Anyway... All this leading up, and finally it's her turn with the king. And she uh, wins his approval. He, but She becomes the one that he likes the best, and she becomes the queen. Meanwhile, Mordecai, seeing all this and going along, he's constantly hanging around the king's gate. He's, he wants to know what's happening with Esther, how's it going. Um, one day he's sitting at the king's gate and he overhears two of the king's officials plotting to kill the king. So he tells Esther. Esther then tells the king and there's an investigation and I realize that you know this, is, this plot is real and these uh, two officials who are plotting to kill the king are brought in and they're hung, they're killed. Mordecai saves the king. Jump forward another four years and we meet a guy called Haman. Now, in the festival of Purim, when the Jews read this out every year, every time the name Haman's mentioned, people boo. Boo. I'm not saying you should do that, um, but that's just one of the traditions. He's the bad guy. He is what's known as an Agagite. You won't read about the Agagites as a race. The Agagites were the royal line of the people of the Amicalites. And the Amicalites are a race of people that, in Deuteronomy, God says to Israel, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. That doesn't completely happen. And so here is a descendant of the Amicalites. His name is Haman. There is a a friction, a long friction between uh, the Israelites and the Amicalites. 
And every day as Haman would come in, he's very powerful. He is second in, in rank to the king. He's very powerful. And every day people would, would, he would walk through the king's gate. Everyone would bow down. Everyone except for Mordecai. Mordecai wouldn't bow down. And this enrages Haman. He is not happy with this. And he's like, not only does he want to kill Haman, he wants to go a step further. He wants to kill all Haman's race. He wants to annihilate all the Jews from across the kingdom. So he goes to the king and he says to the king, King Xerxes, I ha- there is this people, they, they're troublesome, uh, their customs are different, they don't obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. We should annihilate them from the kingdom. And so the king agrees to do that. And the news goes out, an edict uh, goes out across all the provinces in all the languages to make no mistake that on a day in 11 months' time, in order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day. How is that day selected? Because Haman has got what is called a purr. He's cast lot. He's used, it's like a dice called a purr. We don't fully know exactly what it looked like, but he's used that as a way of seeking divine help as to what is the day he should pick. And this is the day set for the Jews' annihilation. And the edict goes out. The Jews are freaking out. They're distraught. They're in despair. Mordecai, he is wearing sackcloth and ashes. He's in a period of mourning. He's wailing at the king's gate. Esther hears about this. She doesn't know why he's so upset. She sends a message What's going on? And this is what was read for us uh, by Simone. She finds out, Mordecai says that this edict has gone out, the Jews will be put to death, and then he says to Esther, Esther, you must go before the king. And Esther replies back, look, you can't just turn up in front of the king. He could kill me. He's got the power of death. Anyone who goes before him, if he doesn't have their favor, unless he hands out the golden scepter. Uh, But Mordecai says, if you don't, God will make a way to deliver, but if you don't, you will surely die. And who knows, this famous line, that you've come to this position for such a time as this. Esther knows it's dangerous. She thinks about it, and then she says, yes, I'll do it. If I perish, I perish. She fully submits, surrenders. She fasts for a couple of days, and three days later, she goes before the king. And when the king sees her standing there, does he go, uh, does he, you know, does he, what does he do? He hands out the golden scepter, and she is able to come before the king. She says to the king, king says, what's the petition? She says, king, I want you to come to a banquet. You and Haman, I've prepared. Haman's excited for this invitation. I'm pretty important. I get to come along too, you know. So they go away, ready for the for the next day's banquet. Haman leaves, but then he sees Mordecai on his way out. And he's like, oh, I hate that guy so much. I can't wait these 11 months to kill him, you know, with, along with the rest of the Jews. I hate him so much. And he talks to his wife about it. And she says, his wife, why don't you get some mates, build a gallows, ask the king we can hang him tomorrow. He's like, great. So his mates get together through the night building gallows. Meanwhile... I relate to this because I didn't sleep like, like much last night. It was a bit hot and humid. Um, the king, for whatever reason, just can't sleep. Now, if you can't sleep, what do you do? You know, does he scroll through his Facebook? You know, does he watch a cooking video on YouTube? You know, does he pull out, um, you know, a Mills and Boone? What does he do? I'm just saying that's a good thing. 
he asks his attendant to come along and read for him from the annals, the official records, the history books uh, of uh, his kingdom. And what does he read about of all the things? He reads the story of Mordecai saving him. And the king says to his attendant, have we, have we done anything as a thank you? Have we honoured this guy? The attendant says no. king's pondering this in his bed. By this time it's early morning. Mordecai's come in. He wants to ask the king, can I kill, can I kill, uh, sorry, sorry, Haman's come in, ready to ask the king, can I kill Mordecai? Haman comes in and King Xerxes said, hey, oh, bring, bring Haman. Haman, what, what should we do for someone I want to honour? Haman's thinking, he wants to honour me because I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty good. And and he goes, look, I reckon we should get this guy, put the king's robes on him. We'll get one of the king's horses. We'll walk him around. You know, we'll make him honoured. When I read that, I'm like, is that a thing? Like, just go for a walk on a pony. And here's the equivalent. This is like the president saying, I'm going to give you Air Force One. You can jump in it. You can do a world tour. You can ride around in that beast limo thing. Do you know what I mean? He's honouring, he wants to honour Mordecai. And so the king uh, says, you know what, the one I want to honour, it's actually Mordecai, it's not you, Haman. Haman, you're the one who's going to have to do it. And Haman's gritting his teeth going, oh, I've got to honour this guy. He is so full of hatred. He's so full of hatred. He goes home, he's so enraged. Um, But then it's time uh, to come back uh, for... Uh, the, the second banquet. So off they go to that, to that second banquet and the king says, look, we went to your banquet, we've come back again. What is your petition? He says to Esther, what is your petition? And Esther says, here is my petition. If it pleases you, grant my life and grant the life of my people. She hasn't said that she's a Jew. She's now revealing that. And, and she says, an edict has gone out to kill my people, uh, the Jews. And King Xerxes says, who is it that's put that edict out? She says, it is this vile man, Haman. The king goes into a rage. What? He walks, he storms off into the garden. Haman is left there with uh, Queen Esther. Now, it's a bit illegal to actually be alone with the queen, but he's like, do I follow the king? He's pretty upset. Do I run? It doesn't look bad. And he starts to beg Esther, please, Esther, please, please forgive me. Please save me from this... Uh, just as the king back in, you know, he's, he, fa- he falls on, he falls on Esther. Jewish tradition actually says it's the angel Gabriel pushing him. That's not in the text, you can decide. But the king walks in right at the wrong time. He's like, what are you doing molesting my wife? And one of the attendants, I assume, didn't like him that much. He goes, yeah, he built a, a gallows for Mordecai. And uh, the king says, hang him on it. So that's what happens to Haman. It's the end of Haman. The king gives Esther all of Haman's estate and she entrusts it to Mordecai uh, to take care of. And But though Haman is dead, it doesn't cancel the edict going out to destroy the Jews. So again, Esther has to, by faith, at all risk, even though she's the queen, come before the king, which she does and she's favoured, and says, uh, listen, we need to stop, can we revoke uh, this edict that has gone out to kill the Jews. In that time, even the king couldn't revoke his own edict. So he says to Esther and Mordecai, what I want you to do is draft up your own edict that can counter that. And so the edict they draft up uh, is that every Jew in every city across 
uh, Persia has the chance to protect themselves, uh, to assemble, and then to destroy, kill, and annihilate any of the Jewish enemies. Mordecai is raised up into a position and, and, and a high position. And on that appointed day, the Jews gather across Persia and kill all their enemies. Uh, so much so that at the end of the day, uh, the king asks Esther, what more can be done? And she says, can I have another day to do it again? Uh, and that happens in Susa. Overall, more than uh, 75,000 of the Jewish the Jews' enemies are, are killed over that day. And at the end, the Jewish people celebrate. And you can read that uh, Mordecai instructs the people this should be an annual celebration to remember uh, the Jews uh, overcoming their enemies. And this becomes the Festival of Purim. As I said, it's still celebrated. It's coming up on the 16th and 17th of, of March uh, this year. Named Purim, named after the Pur named after that lot that, that was cast by Haman. And as the book of Esther ends, uh, we see Mordecai now becoming second in command, uh, second in rank of all the people. Uh, can someone click that? Thank you. Uh, my computer does its things. Um, second in rank to, only to the king, and he's held in high esteem and speaks up for the welfare of the Jews. Um, there's so much in that book. Uh, don't take Langdon's summary for it. Go and read it. You've got to get there. There's so much, so much I've skipped through. So much to reflect on. Uh, as I was preparing this week, I don't know if someone can click off. Oh, Greg's on it. I don't know if, uh, as I was preparing this week, on Thursday was actually International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And I was remembering this. And one of the things that uh, I remember, as, and I'm reminded by in reading this, uh, is anti-Semitism, and it's still alive today. Uh, but I was encouraged reading about how the book of Esther has encouraged the Jewish people throughout uh, the ages. Uh, even uh, even uh, today, a quote from a guy called Robert Goris. He says this, Anti-Semites have always hated the book, and the Nazis forbade its reading in the concentration camps. In the dark days before their deaths, Jewish inmates of Auschwitz, Dachau, Treblinka, and Bergen-Belsen wrote out the Book of Esther from memory and read it in secret each festival of human, Purim. Esther has a lot to say about deliverance. It's been an encouragement for so many people for so long, and it's going to be an encouragement for us today. I hope it is. I have just three reflections I want to give uh, today on Esther. Three uh, reflections. Here's my first one. It's a question. Is God, just like he was working in Esther, is God still delivering people today? I don't know uh, where you're at. Uh, I've had, as I look back in my life, spiritual mountaintops, spiritually high places. For me personally, and maybe this is you, maybe it's not, but maybe this season feels like a flat season. Maybe it even feels like, is God still at work? Does anyone, maybe you, you feel that in some way? Is God still at work delivering his people? Does God still go about the things we see uh, in Esther? I'm seeing culture change. I'm seeing, you know, I've, the things that I've seen God do in the past, I have to re-look at because I'm seeing leader, Christian leaders, um, you know, through indiscretion and things come down uh, from scandal and stuff like that. I'm also in a season of COVID. 
You know, we don't get to do a lot of the things. We don't get together and do some of the uh, outreaches and the things we, we get to do. Our circles become smaller. Is God still at work? Is God still in the work at delivering people? I know in my head, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I know God hasn't changed. But it does feel like a little season, I'll be honest, where uh, maybe God's a little absent. People are suffering, plans are getting cancelled, changes, there's fear, uncertainty. Is God taking a break? And I think this is a natural thing, and I think Esther encourages me in this, because I, think, I suspect this is what the people of Israel were also thinking uh, during the time of Esther. Because think about it, here they are in exile. They're away from the promised land where all those stories that they've read about uh, took place. Um, but they've also been exiled. They've been there for over 100 years. They've seen God at work, but they know that God has judged them. Is God still in the business of delivering them? Or has God, has he left behind the promises? You know, they can read in Genesis 12, uh, these promises made to God's people, firstly to Abraham, I'll make you a great nation, I'll bless you, I'll make your name great, all peoples on earth we bless through you. Israel has sinned bad. Has God just given up on that promise? Has he sort of gone, nah, you've done too much, you're too bad, I'm done with you. You've got to imagine, you know what, maybe God's not around anymore. And one of the fascinating things about the book of Esther is God is not mentioned at all. Yahweh is not mentioned. Even prayer or praying is not mentioned in the book of Esther. And I wonder if this is the author's way of reinforcing this point. This is a time that feels like maybe God's just absent. Maybe God's just not around. But yet, when I read Esther, what do I see? I see God keeping his promises. One of his uh, promises that he makes in Exodus is relating to the Amicalites. He says to Moses, write on a scroll to be remembered, I will completely blot out the name of the Amicalites. What happens through the book of Esther? We actually see God keeping that promise uh, uh, against that work of this Amicalite, uh, Haman. God keeps his promises. It's a huge reminder. In fact, the same God who keeps promises also made a promise to the people around that same time through the prophet Isaiah. He made a promise that a child will be born. He will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting God, prince of peace. He made promises about a Messiah who would come, that Messiah who turns out to be Jesus. And Jesus, the reason we're here today, also makes promises about his return. The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and he will reward each person to what they have done. God is a God who makes promises. Esther reminds me that God makes promises to deliver his people. God will keep those promises. And so for us today, I need to, and us here, we need to keep trusting the God who makes the promises. Even if we're feeling it, even if we're not, Esther encourages me to keep trusting God. I hope he does to you too. Here's my second reflection. Esther teaches me how does God bring deliverance? Two ways. Firstly, God, to bring deliverance, uses people, even questionable people. Because when I read the story of Esther, I look at Esther and Mordecai, our heroes of the story. Do you know what? They're not perfect. 
If you look a little closely, they're really not perfect people. Mordecai, he lets his uh, cousin go to be in a, in, a, in a sex contest, basically. He lets his cousin go to become and married to someone not of the Jewish race. This goes directly against God's laws in Deuteronomy, stating that Jews should not intermarry outside other Jews. The narrator, the author, sorry, doesn't comment on it, but this is what Mordecai is doing. He won't bow down to Haman, sure, but he doesn't not bow down to Xerxes either. We don't hear him protesting against Xerxes. It's a contrast to someone like Daniel, in the book of Daniel, who doesn't bow down uh, to, the, to the idol, to the king there. He's not perfect. Esther isn't perfect either. We don't hear her protesting about going to be the queen either. And at the end of the book, she's the one that actually wants a second day of retribution against the enemies. Now, this was such an issue that in the second century, in the Greek verse, in the Septuagint, um, uh, there's actually extra prayers added by Mordecai and Esther into the text to justify why they're making these decisions, why they're righteous decisions. But to be honest, they're just not perfect. They're not perfect, but you know what? God uses their faithfulness. God uses people to bring about deliverance. Even if they're not perfect people, God uses them. And God uses their faithfulness. And you see Esther completely surrendering. I love these words. If I perish, I perish. God is at work doing his will. And it doesn't depend on if the person's good or not. God doesn't work just as a reward for someone. God works because God has a purpose and a plan and promises he's going to keep. He uses people, questionable people. He uses non-believers too. God is at work doing his will. It encourages me. I hope it encourages you because shocking but true, I'm way far, if you know me well, I'm far, 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 far from perfect. God can still use us. Actually, it doesn't depend on us. Now, is that an excuse for Langdon to go, I can do whatever I want, I can live? No, it's not. In fact, it encourages me when I realize that, that I actually want to know God more and follow God more and trust God more. I hope it encourages you too. God uses people, even questionable ones, but God also, for deliverance, uses divine providence, sovereignty. It's amazing that God is never mentioned, but there are so many random coincidences and timings that happen in this book. You see God at work. I'll give you an example. Queen Vashti just happens to rebel so that uh, Esther can become the queen. Uh, Esther happens to be, you know, the cousin of Mordecai, but happens to be the most beautiful, pleasing girl in all of the empire. She happens to be a Jew. Mordecai happened to be there right at the time to overhear the officials plotting to assassinate uh, the king. Uh, you know, and the same night, Haman is getting upset to the point of, I have to kill Mordecai and build some gallows. Is the same night King Xerxes happens to not be out of sleep and then happens, of all the things he could read, happens to read the story of what Mordecai has done. Circumstance after circumstance after circumstance, time after time, you go, is this crazy? Is this a bit weird? These events coming together. This is God's sovereignty. God in each and every situation. And these are just ordinary things. It's not like the story of salvation at the Passover 
where there are miraculous things, where God leads people out of Egypt, there's pillars of fire and parting of the Red Sea. That's miraculous. The story of Esther is just mundane, everyday things. But in the right timing, in the right ways, God is at work through the situation. Our theologian Burkhoff says this, though that's not the quote there, it says this, God arranges and groups events and objects in such a way as to place every person at every step in those circumstances that he knows will be a sufficient inducement for that person to do by their own free will the very thing God called uh, for in his plan. In other words, God is at work in each and every circumstances. It doesn't mean that God takes away from our free will. It doesn't take away our responsibility for sin, but God is at work in each and every day. And I hope that's an encouragement that each and every day, in the mundane, whether you feel it or not, God is at work doing His will. Um, I've been reflecting on on that a lot because it encourages me. God knows our behaviors. God knows our ways. He knows all the things we do, whether they're from righteous motives, not righteous motives, and God uses them all. I was reflecting on uh, a miraculous story in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus changing the water to, the wa- to wine at the wedding of Cana. That's a pretty miraculous event. But you know what you don't read about, but it's just as important for that story, is on a Tuesday morning sometime, there was a guy making a jar of clay that that wine would go into. You know, There was a wedding. Someone was picking the music. Someone was cooking the special foods, breads or whatever that would serve the wedding. Like everyday things happen for God's will to be done. And God uses his people in everyday ways. And you don't always see it. Often it's not a miraculous, not clear, but God is about his work, doing his promises in each and every day. God works in the mundane as well as the miraculous. And I think for us, sometimes we go, I see the miraculous things, God is at work there. I don't see God in the mundane. It's an encouragement for us. That is how God works. Here's my final reflection. God's deliverance is full reversal. When you read the story, or if I watch some of the movies, the peak of the story is chapter 4 that was read for us. Is uh, Esther and Mordecai, uh, you know, Esther coming before the king, Haman getting killed. That's it. That is not the end of the story. Because when God delivers, he doesn't just tick off a box and get it done quickly. He goes all the way. You read the story of Esther and you see God taking circumstances at the beginning and completely reversing it. Let me give you some examples of that. Uh, Queen Vashti, at the beginning, she challenges the king and is rejected. Queen Esther challenges the king. She's favoured. Esther goes from a parentless Jew outside the city walls to a queen in the palace with the whole kingdom. Haman begins with all the power and the honour and the wealth. By the end of the story, Mordecai has all the power and the honour and the wealth. Haman sets the gallows for Mordecai. And now at the end of the story, it's Haman on the gallows. The Jewish people are in exile. They're powerless against an edict for them to be annihilated to the Jewish people writing their own edict for their enemies to be annihilated. The day for the Jews' destruction becomes the day for their salvation. Haman goes from being uh, just a Jew outside the city walls. uh, Sorry, Mordecai. 
uh, just a Jew outside the city walls, and Haman second to the king, to Mordecai becoming second to the king, and now ultimately looking out for the welfare of the Jews. There is so much in this story, it's a full reversal. It's all the way. And it's an encouragement to me because the most, the biggest deliverance that we need is a deliverance from our sin. It's what stops us having our relationship with God. And God, just like he delivered and he saved the people in Esther, God delivers us from our sin. And God doesn't just tick a few boxes. God goes all the way. We are God due to sin. We are in broken relationships with each other. We live for ourselves in our own power and strength. And because of sin, we are destined to be separated by God, uh, from God forever and be spiritually dead. We live in a world where Satan is still at work. But what does God do? He steps in and does what we can't do, and he totally reverses the situation. For those who trust in Christ, we are brought back into relationship with God through Jesus. We're in complete unity with each other through the church. We live for Christ, not ourselves anymore. We're transformed by the Holy Spirit to live for him. We get to live with God forever. And Satan, our own ultimate enemy, is destroyed. And we get to live in a new heavens and a new earth. God doesn't just forgive us for our sins. God takes sin as a problem and deals with it completely. A few years ago, uh, I was in the States and I was with some friends. We were walking along this lake. We saw this girl, this group of teens. This girl was drunk so drunk she was like hanging out and she couldn't like she was just passed out almost and the friends are drunk as well so they're not doing anything about it and we're looking at this situation this is not good and uh, I remember going we should, let's put her in the car we should take her to the hospital because the friends are too drunk to do anything we're just about to do that and a cop pulls up this is America and this cop pulls up and he's like what's going on we're like oh we're about to take this girl to the hospital he's like leave her leave it to me he guts on his phone and he starts calling people. And I kid you not, in 10 minutes, we could have just driven to the hospital, but in 10 minutes, there's another cop car, there's an ambulance, there is a fire truck, I don't know what a fire truck's for. There's about 20 people turned up to deal with this situation. I'm like, this is overkill, completeness. And it was just America, it's crazy. But here it is. They've, got, it's, they've gone all the way, and this is what God does for us through Jesus. God sees our sin. He doesn't just tick a few boxes. God goes, I know, I'm going to go all the way to do what I need to do to complete the full deliverance, the full reversal. Ephesians 1, check it out, is a great place uh, to see all that Christ has done in us to completely reverse the effects of sin. This is what God does. This is who God is. Let me finish uh, with just three applications. Number one, go and read it. I cannot do justif justify the text. Go and read it. It takes about 45 minutes. This week, number one thing, go read Esther. There's so much gold. Go read it for yourself. Read it in your life group. Number two, here's my encouragement. Trust God for deliverance. I don't know what's happening in your life. I don't know if there's an area. Maybe it's a good time for you. Maybe there's a time now that you, or a time's going to come when you're desperate for God. Circumstances are out of control. You need deliverance from something. Here's my encouragement. Trust God. Uh, this verse from Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things, 
God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And I pray that God will answer that prayer for deliverance out of that circumstance. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't answer the prayer straight away or doesn't do what you ask, keep trusting God. Just like so many believers in times gone past, they trusted God that even if they didn't see circumstances change in their life, they trusted God for the life to come. They kept trusting God. It's hard to do. Keep trusting God for deliverance. Here's my final encouragement. Get on board with God's will. Put on that garment of deliverance. Get on board with what God is doing. Look around, pray, seek God. How will you at work bringing deliverance in the world? Can I just say, it doesn't matter what I do anyway, God, who cares? It doesn't matter how I live. You could do that. God's will will still be done. However, you and me, we get to be a part of God's work bringing deliverance. A big way we do that is bringing the good news of Christ to the world, to our community here. We get to bring God's deliverance from sin, that message. God doesn't have to use us. God doesn't need to use us. But God seems to delight in using his people to bring deliverance. We have the great privilege of being a part of that. So seek God. God, Ask God, how can I be used by you to be a part of the deliverance that you're bringing to the world? Put on that garment. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, what a book. Esther, so much gold. Father, we thank you that Esther teaches us so much about deliverance. Father, I pray that as we go this week and just read through the text, you would speak to us. And Father, I pray that you would enable us to trust you, Lord, whether our prayers are answered or not, whatever the need is, whatever deliverance we need, Father, we trust you and your promises that you will deliver. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would not be rebellious against your will, but Lord, you'd give us your mind to see how you're at work bringing your deliverance to the world. And I pray, Lord, we, your people, can be a part of your acts of deliverance, all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.